The reason that God, there we go, the reason that God breaks into the world to save it is because of his love. So we've looked at hope, we've looked at love, and now we're going to ask the question, what is our response to that? What is our response to our hope, uh, to the way that God meets our hope in love? How do we respond? And so that question takes us to uh, Luke's gospel as we continue to look at different songs uh, that help lead us through Advent. We've looked at two psalms in the Old Testament, and now we're going to look at a song in the New Testament in Luke's Gospel. And just so we get a little bit of context, so we get the backstory, I'm going to start reading in Luke 1, verse 26. It's, uh, it's a story that some of you are familiar with, probably, and hopefully it's a story, um, or I should say that uh, maybe it's a story that some of you aren't familiar with, and so I hope that uh, today uh, you hear... Hear the truth in it. Luke 1, verse 26. If you're reading in the Red Pew Bible, page 855. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, let's pause for a second. The reason that Mary is troubled is because usually if an angel comes from God and appears to you, it is a troubling thing. Uh, every time in the Bible when you see an angel of the Lord appear, the other person, the human being to whom the angel appears, falls down on their face in fear. So Mary is a little bit concerned about what this may mean, which explains why the angel says to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin, literally since I do not know a man. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Just like in Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God hovers, overshadows the face of the deep. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her also who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. <clears throat> in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. All right, so let's pause right there and just kind of get a sense before we see what Mary's response is to all that. Let's see what Mary has to respond to. She is a virgin, and she gets a visit from an angel. And what that angel tells her is, you're going to have a baby. And it's not just going to be any baby. You're going to have the baby. You're going, your baby is going to be the Messiah, the one that all of your people have been waiting on, the one who's supposed to take the empty throne of David and reign forever, a promise that they had heard thousands of years before. That's your baby. That's the baby that you're going to have. And you're going to name him Jesus. And we learn in Matthew's Gospel the name Jesus. Uh, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. So you're going to have the baby. And she responds in faith. And then as a confirmation... She goes to visit Elizabeth, right? Because think about it. When something amazing, even unbelievable, happens to you, what do you want to do? You want to share it with somebody. And how gracious is God that in his economy, in the way that he is working things out, he gives Mary Elizabeth, another, her her cousin Elizabeth, an older woman who's never had any children, has never been able to have children, She also has experienced a miraculous conception. She too will have a miracle baby. So not only does God give this astounding news to Mary, but then he gives her a way to confirm it with her cousin Elizabeth. And so Mary uh, leaves her home in Nazareth, goes down to Judah, finds Elizabeth, and as soon as she walks into the house and says hello, it's confirmed, right? The baby, uh, John the Baptist in the womb, gives Elizabeth a good kick. Right? And Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, says, Blessed are you. She confirms exactly what the Lord had promised to do in Mary. And so <clears throat> she gets this astounding news. She gets this confirmation from Elizabeth and from even John the Baptist, yet to be born, jumping for joy inside of Elizabeth. And here is how she responds in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the imaginations of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, about three months, and returned to her home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Open your word to us. Open it to our understanding. Help us to share in Mary's joy at watching you work. May we, as we reflect on Mary, may we discover the source of our own joy that we too can magnify you. We too can rejoice in you as our Savior. I pray that you would lead us to that point through Mary's song. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we, what is the right response to the love of God? It's joy. It's rejoicing. That's how Mary responds here. Uh, here's the thing. Joy is kind of hard to come by, right? Uh, the, the, the point of today's sermon is that the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of joy, ends in the power and mercy of God. That's, that's what we see in Mary's life. But before we get there, we have to acknowledge that we spend our lives hunting for joy. And it's hard to find, isn't it? Think about, uh, think about the framers, the writers of our Declaration of Independence. Do you remember uh, they, they said, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Do you remember what those unalienable rights are? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I don't know about you, but typically when I think of those three things, I take out, a, I take out the pursuit of. And I think life, liberty, and happiness. But our, uh, our forefathers were smarter than that. They knew that happiness was a very hard thing to come by. And so they did not say we have a right from God for happiness. They said we have a, that a government ought to secure its people so that they have a right to pursue happiness. And that's how we spend our lives. We spend our lives in pursuit of happiness. Our lives tell that story. And actually, right, pursuing something and having something are two different things. Right? There was a girl you pursued in middle school. You never got her, right? And your friend said, give it up, man. Um, pursuing something and having something are two very different things. You can pursue a dream all of your life, all of your life, and you can never achieve it. Pursuit and achievement are two different things. And our lives tell that story. And I'm using the word happiness and joy, uh, those two words. I'm using those interchangeably. Uh, some of you, some, sometimes people will say, well, there's a difference, right? There's happiness. Uh, chocolate cake makes me happy. Um, and then there's joy, right? There's a deeper joy. Uh, celebrating Christmas with my family brings me joy. I'm not going to use that distinction because the Bible doesn't use that distinction, okay? Uh, there, there isn't, at least in the Bible, there's not much of a distinction between happiness on the surface and joy deep down. In fact, the way the Bible views it is all of those things are facets of true joy. So chocolate cake brings me joy. My family brings me a different sort of joy. Eating chocolate cake with my family Doubles my joy, right? Uh, running brings me joy. And for some of you, that's like, what? 
Um, how can that possibly bring you joy? Right? So, so all of those things are different components of joy, but we spend our lives pursuing happiness, pursuing joy. And the question is, how do we find it? Well, a group of, uh, a group of English Christians in 1653 came up with this answer. They studied the Bible meticulously. Uh, they met. They prayed. Um, and here's the answer they came up with, right? Because what we're trying to answer, the question is, really, this, it's this age-old philosophical question, what is the meaning of life? What am I to be about? How am I to spend my days? What am I supposed to be doing with my time? The framers of the Declaration said, spend it in the pursuit of happiness. And here's how this group of English Christians in the 1600s came up with. They, the first question in their catechism was, what is the chief end of man? What is man's chief purpose? What is, what is the meaning of life? And here's their answer. Man's chief end, his main purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, you may have come away with the idea that, sure, I can spend my life glorifying God. I think what's beautiful about what those Westminster, uh, they call them divines back then, but what those men came up with was that they realized that glory... God's glory and our joy go hand in hand. And that for us to truly glorify God, for us to truly praise and magnify Him, we must enjoy Him. And that if you do not enjoy God, if He does not bring you joy, then you can't really glorify Him. And in fact, you're going to hate heaven. Heaven would be the last place you would want to be. Because you don't want to enjoy the one who will fill all of heaven and earth. And so, what is the meaning of life? How do we find joy? It is found in glorifying and enjoying God. God is the source of all our joy. Let's look at Psalm 16, just as a, just as a proof of this idea. Psalm 16. Read some selections from it. And you can find these sorts of things all over the Scriptures. David says this in Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Can you imagine that? No good. So if I'm going to go back to my illustration of chocolate cake and my family and running as facets of all the same joy... All of those things that I enjoy as good, they are not good unless I enjoy them in the Lord. The Lord, joy in the Lord, gives joy to all of those other things. It is a multifaceted diamond. Verse 5, Psalm 16, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David confirms this thesis that God's glory and our joy go hand in hand. And for us to really find true joy, well, it means to know God and to find our true joy in Him. Now, so here's what, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to examine your Christmas season so far, right? <clears throat> Yesterday, we, uh, we took the boys up uh, to go see a movie. Uh, and as typical, when we're trying to get out of the house and then get on the road, especially on a Saturday afternoon when I've got a Sunday morning to preach and there's a few other things on my mind and my anxiety level is high, I was not the kindest father, Right? Uh, and after and after a particularly stern rebuke to one of the squealing uh, children in the back, I looked at my wife and I said, "My sermon's about joy. We're going to preach on joy, right?" Um, now you may not be like me, uh, but I imagine that uh, that maybe just maybe you have that similar sensation. That joy for you is hard to come by, right? That there are lots of things that pull from and try to steal away our joy. And so my goal today is to look at, what, at, look at Mary's example and see if we can kind of re-anchor, right? Um, usually if something is stealing your joy, it means you have either not dropped anchor in the Lord, so the anchor is still up, or you've dropped it in something else altogether. You've dropped it in the hope that your children would obey just for this trip to the movies and that you could get your sermon done on time, or whatever it may be. Um, when, we, when we anchor our hope in anything less than God himself, our joy is stolen. We are robbed of our joy. And so let's look at Mary's example and see, uh, see what she does, see where she finds joy. And overall, what we see... We spend our lives hunting for joy, and what we find is that God's mercy and power are the cause of great joy. Mary says, she sings, really, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, magnify, you know what that means, right? To make something look big, right? That's what a magnifying glass does. Uh, But are we saying then that God is small so that we need a magnifying glass or a microscope to examine him? No, that's not what she's saying at all. What magnification does is it brings out all the details. It brings up the realities. It highlights what is really there. What Mary is saying in response to all that God has done is she is saying, I am exalting God. I am bringing up all of the things that otherwise I wouldn't be seeing. I'm bringing into reality. uh, I am magnifying and highlighting God himself. And she does that by her spirit rejoicing. Praising God and rejoicing in God are parallel. They're the same thing in Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Rejoicing and praising are the same for Mary. And we see that is true in our own lives, right? Whatever whatever you enjoy... That you praise, right? I don't know why Alabama football is the first thing to come up. But whatever you enjoy, 
That is what you praise. Your, pra- your, your joy even spills out of your praise. If you have a good day on the lake, you talk about it. You praise it. If you have a good day in the tree stand, you're going to magnify it. If you finally get that buck, you're going to magnify it. You might even magnify it a little too much, right? You're going to over-magnify it. That's not what Mary's doing. But you're going to talk about it. You're going to bring it up. Our praise reveals our joy. And so Mary is rejoicing in God and she's praising God. And why is she doing that? Verse 48, because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. I want to focus on a phrase there at the end of verse 49. Holy is his name. Um, A good book for you to take a look at would be R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, because it examines kind of this whole idea of what holiness is. Usually we tend to limit holiness and just think that God's holiness is his uh, sinlessness. But that really is just one dimension. What God's holiness is, what holy meant in the Old Testament was to be set apart, to be different, to be other. And so God's holiness is his otherness. He is altogether different from us. And that means that he is sinless. But holiness defines his glory, it defines his love, it defines his righteousness. All of these other things are described as holy. And so what Mary is doing is she is praising God's incomparable greatness. She is finding joy in God's incomparable greatness. What do you find joy in? And his incomparable greatness, what have they done? Well, they've He who is mighty, he's worked his power, he's done great things for me, and he has mercy. How has his power worked in Mary's life? Well, um, conceiving a baby in the womb without the help of a man would be a great example of God's miraculous power at work. And so Mary rejoices because of what God has done for her individually. History will change because of her. Now, history will change because of God working through her. But the, but the boy who will change the course of, the enti- of entire history will come from her. And so she realizes she is not worthy of that. She is not adequate for such a great honor. And so she rejoices. She is humbled and she rejoices because God has looked on her lowly state. And has chosen to bless her. Right? So that's the first way. Uh, the first way that you can come at joy is to realize that God has done things that you did not deserve God to do. God has blessed where you certainly did not deserve blessing. And as a result, we can rejoice. Not only that, Mary rejoices over what God is doing in the world. Verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. We looked at this some last week, that the way God works in the world is he does not stick to the status quo. He doesn't look at the powerful, he doesn't look at the mighty, the well-educated, the wealthy, and say, aha, because you have gained much for yourself, you shall rule the world. What God does is he reverses, right? He flips the script. That's why Mary rejoices. The way that God will save the world is not by bringing another prince into a throne room. No, the way that God will save the world is by bringing a boy into a barn to a working class couple. That's how God will save the world. God will exercise his power. He will exercise his power against the haughty, against the proud. Why? Because the proud do not rejoice in God. The proud do not fear God. They rejoice in themselves. They fear themselves, in a sense. They reverence their own stuff, their own power, their own wealth. This Verse 51 He says he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, literally in the imaginations of their hearts. Here's the picture that Mary sees. She sees rulers like King Herod, who was a ruthless king in Mary's day, who think that they're powerful. And by the world's standards, they are powerful. But Mary Mary sees the truth. She says, no, that's just in his imagination. He imagines that he is great. He imagines that he is powerful. God will come along and he will scatter men like Herod. He will scatter the proud and their foolish imaginations. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones. And he will exalt those of humble estate. Again, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26. That the gospel is foolishness uh, to the world. And yet God uses it. He uses what is low uh, to exalt himself. So Mary rejoices because of what God has done for her. And we can have joy in what God has done for us. But Mary also rejoices of what God is doing in the world. And that's the second way that we can fight for joy. Fight to see what God is at work doing in the world. Fight to see how God, pray for God to reverse the sinful condition of things. And rejoice that even if the haughty rule now, even if the evil rule now, it will not always be so. There will come a day when Jesus will flip the script and those who are high will be brought low and those who are low will be exalted. We should humble ourselves and realize that true joy is found in the fear of in the reverence of the Lord. And then finally, Mary rejoices that God has kept his promises. Look at verse 54. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, in Genesis 12, God calls this pagan named Abram, a man who'd never heard of God, And he says, follow me to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the world will be blessed. That was God's promise to Abram. 
all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. When Mary hears that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, what she knows is going on in her womb is God keeping his promise. And so she rejoices. If it is hard for you to rejoice in what God has done for you, if, if, if your circumstances are too painful that you cannot see that, if it is hard for you to rejoice, if it's hard for you to see what God is at, God is at work doing in the world, just as a note on that, did you know that more Muslims, this is from an article posted on Facebook last week, more Muslims are coming to know the Lord than at any previous point in history. So even, so even though there is great violence at work in the Middle East, God is also on the move. He is bringing, uh, he is bringing rebellious sinners. He's bringing his people in. Uh, so take heart. But if it's hard for you to rejoice in that, rejoice in the fact that God is keeping his promises that he is a promise-keeping God, that thousands of years before Mary would even walk the earth, God made promises to a man named Abram who he would carry the rest of his life and he'd carry his son and he'd carry his grandson and his great-grandsons and all of his descendants after that. God is keeping his promises and he's keeping them in Jesus. So much so that the Apostle Paul in Galatians could say that you and I, though we are not Jewish, if we share faith in Jesus, we are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. God has kept his promise to you in the birth of Mary's son. He's kept his promise to the world. He's kept his promise to you individually. He's brought you into his family because of this boy that was in Mary's womb. And so Mary rejoices that God has helped Israel that God has remembered his mercy. So, how do we, what do we do with that? Well, we look for joy in all the right places. Remember the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. That's, let's just change the word. When you look for joy in all the wrong places, you will not find joy. It will be, it will be robbed of you. When you look for joy in your hobbies, apart from the Lord... You will, not, you will not find the satisfaction that you are looking for. You must look for joy because it is hard to find. You must look for joy in all the right places. Your life will be a graveyard of disappointed longings, of frustrated expectations until you discover Mary's joy. So if you're a skeptic, if, you're, if you would say this morning, I'm not a Christian, I want you to at least consider what Jesus offers. I want you to consider... Uh, what Jesus offers in John 15 and 16, when he tells his disciples, I want your joy to be full. What David says in Psalm 16, with you is the fullness of joy. It may be that the impression you get from Christians is that we are a dour and sour and unhappy people. And if that's the impression you get, we may have earned it correctly, but it is the wrong impression. We are not dour and sour and unhappy people. Or at least we shouldn't be. Because the joys and rewards stored up for us at the hands of Jesus are unimaginable. Right? C.S. Lewis would call them unblushing rewards. So if you're a skeptic, I want you to consider what Jesus offers. True happiness. 
Not true happiness in football, not true happiness in hunting, but true happiness in Jesus himself. It's true that in this, in this life we take up the cross. This life is one of self-denial. This life is one of trouble and trial and suffering. But these are not the end of life. Self-denial is not the goal. If we take up the cross, it is because one day we will wear the crown. And so we look for the crown. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I imagine that a few of you know what it's like to have your outer self waste, feel like it's wasting away. Paul says, don't lose heart. If you're in Jesus, your inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, coming from a man who was beat and shipwrecked and imprisoned, he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What is Paul's recipe for joy? Don't don't get distracted. Don't see the suffering as an end as in itself. Don't, Don't see this light momentary affliction and think that that's all there is. Look to the joy. Look to the unblushing rewards stored up for you in Jesus. As Paul says, for the things that are seen are transient. Hunting is transient. Alabama football, thank God, is transient. Cancer is transient. Poverty is transient. Hunger is transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Mary found her joy in the promise-keeping, mercy-loving, miracle-working God of the Bible. If you want to find joy, look where Mary looked. Come to Jesus. Turn away from all those, those piddly joys. And sink your anchor, sink your hope in the only joy that will last forever. Let's pray. O Lord, that the songs uh, of our hearts would be what we have just sung. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Peace, peace, Jesus Christ was born to save. O Lord, help us to rejoice. To rejoice like Mary rejoiced, to rejoice like David rejoiced, and Paul rejoiced, to rejoice in the God who is our Savior. That we would have fullness of joy today and forever. We ask it in Jesus' name.